reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 to 30. You'll find this on page 977 of the Church Bibles. Page 977, Matthew chapter 11. Verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Good. Well, all of us enjoy receiving uh, invitations, don't we, to a meal, to a wedding reception, to a concert, and usually the invitation is printed on a little card, and there are these cryptic little letters written at the bottom, R-S-V-P. Now, we know what those letters mean. They're an abbreviation of a French request to reply to the invitation, but unfortunately not everybody does know that. A couple found political asylum, asylum in the country during the Second World War. They came from Eastern Europe and they were not well versed in British culture. One day they received a wedding, uh, an invitation to a wedding and at the bottom of the invitation were those cryptic letters RSVP. In his thick Eastern European accent the husband said, wife? What does it mean, R-S-V-P? That's my best meerkat, really. Um, <laughs> apologies to our Romanian members. Um, so they thought for a while until inspiration dawned and the husband said, Wife, I know what it means. Remember, send wedding presents. <laughs> right, okay. You see, they had made a mistake by imagining that the message was a demand when in reality it was an invitation. Unfortunately, there are many people who make the same mistake about Jesus Christ and the gospel. They think it is a demand when in reality it is an offer, a free invitation in the passage that Phil just read to us, Jesus speaks what are amongst perhaps the most tender and appealing words that he ever uttered. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus addresses two invitations to us, and they're preceded by two statements about himself. And those two statements offer more about knowledge of God. And what they both have in common 
is the word reveals. So, the two statements. God is revealed only in, by Jesus Christ. Matthew eleven twenty seven. Jesus explains, Nobody knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Only Jesus knows God, so only he can make him known. That means, of course, that only Christ can make the Father fully and finally known. Of course, God is known partially in other ways, in the order and beauty of the created universe, in the moral demands of our consciences, and in the unfolding developments of history, And yet even though creation tells me of his glory, uh, our conscience of his righteousness, and history, his power and his providence, nobody tells me of his love for sinners and his plan to redeem us except Jesus Christ. And that's why every inquiry into the truth of the Christian faith must begin by looking at the historic person of Jesus. And when you do look at him, he is really quite unnerving. He is quiet and unassuming. And yet he has immense confidence in the way in which he advanced his claims and his mission and purpose in life. He didn't turn up with a whole lot of fanfare of trumpets. There wasn't boasting and show. There was no personal ostentation. But he was daring enough to call the Lord of heaven and earth his father, saying that he himself is the father's only son, stating that all things have been delivered to him by the Father. In other words, he is the heir of the entire universe and claiming that only he knew the Father and only the Father knew him. In other words, he's claiming that there exists between him and God the Father a uniquely intimate and reciprocal relationship. And Jesus' claim to that is both absolute and exclusive. No other religious leader in history has ever dared to make it. God is revealed fully and finally only in Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis, as always, offers some very valuable clarifying insights about Jesus in relation to other religious figures in history. Speaking of Jesus as how he's presented in Scripture, Lewis says... On the one side, you have clear, definite moral teaching. And on the other side, you have claims, which if not true, are the most megalomaniac compared to those of a megalomaniac. Compared with whom, he says, Hitler was the most sane and humble of men. There's no halfway house and there's no parallel in other religions. He goes on, he says, if you'd gone to the Buddha and asked him, are you the son of Brahma? He would have said, my son, you're still in the veil of illusion. If you'd gone to Socrates and asked, are you Zeus? He would have laughed at you. If you'd gone to Muhammad and asked, are you Allah? 
he would first have rent his clothes and then beheaded you. If you'd asked Confucius, are you in heaven, I think he would have probably replied, remarks which are not in accordance with nature are in bad taste. The idea, Lewis stresses, of Jesus being a great moral teacher, and that alone, is out of the question. He says, in my opinion, the only person who can say that sort of thing is either God or a complete lunatic, suffering from that form of delusion which undermines the whole mind of man. If you think, he says, you are a poached egg when you are looking for a piece of toast to suit you, you may be sane. But if you think you are God, there is no chance for you. Points out, we may note in passing that Jesus was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects, hatred, terror, adoration. There's no trace of people expressing mild approval. That's from his book, God in the Dock, and the essay, What Are We to Make of Jesus Christ? When we speak of Jesus then to others, we must not bow to the pluralistic ethos of our culture and allow him to be reduced to one religious or moral teacher among others. He claimed to be God, and either he was or he was not. If he was not, we certainly should not believe in and follow him. If he was we should present him as we find him in the scriptures, knowing that some will be drawn to him, while others will ridicule, reject, and probably give us a hard time, just as they did the apostles and countless others in Christian history. As we speak to others about Christ, though, with hopefully the same love, humility, and clarity that he modelled for us, we can be assured that he will be glorified and that those he chooses will respond. In the second statement, God is revealed only to little children. Jesus prays in verse 25, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and clever and revealed them to little children. The Greek words literally babies. By babies, Jesus meant not those young in years, but those, whatever they are, their age, who are childlike and humble in their approach to finding out the meaning of life, whether there is a God, who is Jesus Christ. Babies in the vocabulary of Jesus are sincere, humble seekers after the truth. From everybody else, Jesus says... God hides himself. Now, we're not to misunderstand this. This isn't an encouragement to be anti-intellectual and to deny the importance of our rational minds. It's simply an acknowledgement of our own limitations. That we are seeking God, who is the creator of this enormous universe, with its complexity that our minds rightly founder, we are hopelessly out of our depth because God is infinite and we are finite, we are limited. Our little minds are pretty capable of understanding 
remarkable things in the, in the realm of empirical sciences, but they are lost when seeking God. If we are sort of proud, if we are arrogant and aloof and think that we are subjecting him to the microscope, we'll never find him. You know, we're never going to get there. If, on the other hand, we have a hefty dose of humility, if we're not kind of critical, I don't mean we use our critical faculties, but we don't come with the attitude of thinking, nah, I, can, I, mean, I know enough to rule out the, any possibility of there being a divine being behind all this. If we come with that attitude and read the Gospels, we'll never find him. We're too proud. We have to come with the, the disposition of a little child, willing to trust if we find the person trustworthy. Now I wonder whether there's anybody in church this morning who's never really found God. And I wonder whether this might be the reason that you're seeking him with the wrong attitude. God hides himself from that kind of person who thinks he knows enough to confidently rule God out of the picture. But God reveals himself to those who are humble in seeking him. One of the cleverest people that I've ever known said rather modestly, what's required of us is not that we close our minds, but that we open them. It's not that we stifle our minds, it's that we humble them. So here are two truly amazing claims that Jesus made. First, that God hides himself from the intellectually sophisticated and reveals himself to babies. And second, God is revealed only in Jesus Christ. So then we move from those two statements to the two invitations that he makes. And the first invitation is this, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Notice to whom the invitation is addressed. He's speaking to us, human beings, and he's far from complimentary. He likens us to oxen with such a load on their backs that it threatens to crush them. I mean, oxen are pretty tough. Water buffaloes, which are sort of Asian and African versions, they're also incredibly dangerous. They are phenomenally strong. But that's how he pictures us. He assumes that human beings are burdened. And he's obviously got a lot of mileage in thinking like that. There is, for example, the burden of our anxieties and fears, of our temptations and responsibilities, and of our loneliness. There is the burden of the sense that this life doesn't really have any meaning. And above all, there's the burden of our failures, what the Bible calls our sins. And we know we have them because our conscience pricks us from time to time and we feel a sense of guilt. And we feel a sense of shame associated with that. 
And when we have communion services, we have often these words about the burden of them is intolerable, unbearable. To wrestle with a guilty conscience, to lose sleep through the night because we're aware that there is something that has blocked us off from God is a fairly awful experience. And yet, as one experienced spiritual diagnostician once put it, if these things are not part of our experience, I fear we shall never accept the invitation of Christ. So it is the burden he invites us to come, it's the burden that he invites us to come to him. That we're, if we're burdened people, if we're walking around with this dirty great baggage on our back and we can't offload it ourselves, he's the one who has offered to unload it for us. He says in another passage, those who are healthy don't need a doctor, but only those who are sick. We come to him when we sense our spiritual sickness, when we sense our burdens. And the very first step to take towards Jesus Christ is a frank and humble admission that we need him. Now, nothing keeps people away from Jesus Christ more than a sense of arrogance and unwillingness to acknowledge that we need him desperately. So what is it he's actually offering to the burdened? Well, he offers to ease their yoke, to lift their burden, to give them rest and to set them free. What a wonderful prospect. Nobody else can do that but Christ, for he's portrayed in the New Testament as the supreme burdened bearer. He bore our burden when he died on the cross. Listen again to some of the verses where this is uh, affirmed. The Lord has laid on him, that's Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Behold the Lamb of God who lifts up and bears away the sin of the world. He was once offered to bear the sins of many. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. So Jesus is the sin bearer, the burden bearer. If we come to him, he will lift our burden from us. This is the very essence of the Christian good news. That almighty God loves us. That in spite of our sin and guilt and rebellion, he loves us and came after us in Jesus Christ. He wants us back for good. He took, his, he took our nature upon him, becoming a human being. He lived the perfect life of love. He had no sin of his own which needed to be atoned for. And then on the cross, he identified himself with our sin and guilt. In fact, he was made sin with our sins. And he was made a curse instead of us. And in that God-forsaken darkness of the cross, Jesus endured the condemnation that we deserve. So that now, on the grounds of, the, of his sin-bearing death on the cross, if we come to him, he will lift the burden and give us rest full and free forgiveness, together with a new birth and a new beginning.
invites, he invites us to come to him if we're burdened. But what do we have to do? Well, in one sense, nothing except come to him. Salvation is a gift. It is absolutely free and utterly undeserved. And there's no substitute for a personal commitment to Jesus Christ. He says with emphasis, come to me. Enter into a relationship with him. Now some people make it all very complicated and they become engrossed in the externals of religion. We don't have too many trappings here, but it's quite possible to kind of somehow think that you become a Christian by osmosis. You just kind of merge into it. And you may come to the lunch club. You may come to Christianity Explored courses. You may come to church social events and dramas and quiz evenings. And you may even start coming to the services. In other words, you come to everything except the person making the offer, Jesus Christ. It's possible to come to all of those things and never come to him. Some years ago, there was um, a famous professor of Hebrew and Semitic languages at, at the University of Edinburgh. His name was Dr. John Duncan. He was known affectionately by his students as Rabbi Duncan because he'd been a missionary to the Jews of Hungary. And such were his attainments in Semitic languages that his students were persuaded that he actually prayed in Hebrew, which is one of the Semitic languages. One night, two of his students crept quietly along the corridor out, and outside his bedroom, they put their ear to the keyhole to try and listen, and they expected to hear him interceding in Hebrew but this, though, is what they heard. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon a little child. Pity my simplicity, suffer me to come to thee. Well, if somebody that talented, who would intellectually knock the spots off of all of us, can do that, I see no reason why I shouldn't and you shouldn't. Come to me, he says simply, and I will give you rest. And the second invitation is this, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. There is a wonderful balance in the Bible. The Christian life is not just taking it easy and enjoying the rest. When we come to Christ, he first eases our yoke off of us, and then he fits his yoke upon us in its place. He not only lifts our burden but he places his burden on us instead. Now, there are probably far too many of us who want the rest without the yoke. We want to lose our burden, but we don't want to gain Christ's. Again, there's mileage in another little saying of C.S. Lewis, one of his very shrewd observations. He says, I didn't go to religion to make me happy, I always knew a bottle of port could do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity, he said. The two invitations of Jesus, of course, belong together. 
and they come as a package. So what is this yoke of Jesus? A yoke, as we probably know, is that horizontal bar that's put over a couple of oxen so that uh, they can uh, work together and pull the plough or whatever truck, oh, not truck, but, you know, um, wagon behind them. And Jesus spoke of the yoke of the Torah, the yoke of the law, because in the Old Testament, a yoke is a symbol of submission to authority. And what Jesus meant when he said, take my yoke upon you, he explains by adding, and learn from me. To take upon us the yoke of Christ is to enter his school and to become his disciple, to regard him not only as our saviour, but as our Lord and teacher, which includes submitting our minds and our wills to his lordship, bringing every part of our life under his sovereign control. That might sound hard, but it isn't really, because it's what we're made for. It is the way of liberation, because the burden we lose when we come to Christ is a heavy one, but the burden we gain from Christ is a light one. What Jesus is inviting us to do in coming to him and learning from him is to find the way of freedom, Jesus describes himself as humble and gentle in heart. So we have nothing to fear if we come to him. He is a patient, gentle master. And he lays upon us an easy yoke and a light burden if we will but come to him. Now did you notice, as we close, that although there are two invitations, the promise attached to the two invitations is exactly the same. He says, come unto me, all you who are weary and are burdened, and I will give you rest. And he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls. The way to find rest is to lose our burden at the cross and allow Christ to put his burden and yoke upon us instead. Freedom is not found in discarding the yoke of Christ. It's found in losing our own burden. It's not found in discarding his authority. It's an amazing truth that freedom is found under the yoke of Christ. It's one of those great paradoxes of the Christian life. That under his yoke we find rest, through service we find freedom. When we lose ourselves, we find ourselves. And we die to self-centeredness, we begin to live. Let us pray. A final thought. Invitations need to be responded to. And if you hear the invitation of Jesus to come to him, you need to respond. Here's the Lord's promise through Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet, which I encourage you to take away and meditate on. In Jeremiah 29, 12. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. 
Heavenly Father, if we hear the invitation to come to you, may you give us the resolve to do so. Amen.